Welcome back. I'm talking today about Thomas Middleton's play, A Chase Made in Cheapside. I'm going to have a go later at telling you what A Chase Made in Cheapside, well, I can tell you what it's about, but what actually happens in A Chase Made in Cheapside is a bit more difficult to summarise. Uh, but I'm going to come to that later in the lecture. Let's start by saying that it's a play about various marketised sexual relationships and how sex works in a world where everything is for sale. So, as I say, we'll come back to some of the details later. But my first thought about how to approach this was via a modern play, uh, not least because perhaps we're a bit too uh, inclined to be historical always, to think that history is the only lens through which we can see the text of the past. And maybe theatre... Uh, in the way that it reinvents plays and puts them up in quite different contexts is, a, is actually a, rather an ahistorical form or a form which could be looked at in different ways. So the play which, with which it has, with which Chase made has some interesting similarities and some actually more interesting differences is Mark Ravenhill's play Shopping and Fucking or uh, for a long time I thought it was called Shopping and F asterisk 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 A-I-N-G, which actually isn't, that's just how it's reviewed in most of the broadsheet papers. Uh, Ravenhill's play opened at the Royal Court Theatre in 1996. In lots of ways, the two titles uh, of Ravenhill and uh, Middleton are analogous. Middleton's title turns on the paradoxical idea that there could ever be such a thing as a chaste maid in the city's urban commercial thoroughfare, Cheapside. Uh, and there's something about chaste as in kind of um, uh, run after, I think, and possibly also chaste as a, a, a term in goldsmithing, which is one of the occupations in the play. So that paradoxical idea about the impossibility of the chaste maid in Cheapside is not unlike <coughs> Ravenhill's savage conflation of those two gerunds. Ravenhill's play, is, which I recommend to you, is a black comedy in which four characters named after the boy band Take That have various empty, rather soulless, often random or violent sexual fantasies and encounters. Ravenhill explained the concept to the theatre critic Dominic, Dominic Cavendish. This is what he said his play was about. It's satirically swiping at a kind of moral and spiritual <coughs> emptiness a kind of moral and spiritual emptiness. Everything is defined in terms of consumption. <coughs> so it's satirically swiping at a kind of moral and spiritual emptiness where everything is defined in terms of consumption. <coughs> the characters are desperately trying to find a different set of values, but they can't. So when I lighted on this comparison, as I was wondering how to start today's lecture... I thought Ravenhill's play would be an interesting modern analogy. I thought it might help us talk about the ways in which Middleton's interconnected worlds of sex, commerce and meat might be seen in a more contemporary light. And I also wondered if it might help us with Middleton's characterisation. Middleton's persons, uh, play persons, work as a kind of inspired caricature his characters are not rounded or psychological in any modern way. And it's hard for the word caricature somehow to be anything other than negative, although I don't think I mean it negatively. 
But the result is that Middleton's characterization has usually been judged unsatisfactorily two-dimensional compared with Shakespeare. Now, that comparison with Shakespeare is more generally, perhaps, the single intellectual reflex which limits our enjoying and understanding the drama of his contemporaries. Uh, I say that knowing I'm going to do a little bit of it myself uh, in this lecture. And perhaps also Mark Ravenhill's play might point to a different sort of late capitalist aesthetic, the flat, rather vacant literary characterization we might recognize from the so-called blank generation, the blank generation of American writers of the 1980s, such as Brett Easton Ellis. So maybe this modern text, I thought, could help us uh, both with the, the, the kind of uh, shopping and fucking part, but also with the characterization part. But as I reread Ravenhill's play alongside A Chase Made in Cheapside, it made me realize how humane Middleton is in relation to Ravenhill. Middleton's not usually seen to be a sentimental writer. Uh, that's one of the great things about him. Uh, but I think there's more, much more warmth in his play uh, than there is in Ravenhill's. Middleton's characters in A Chase Made are enmeshed in exchanges which are hedged about with self-interest and with deception, to be sure. But they seem to be ultimately meaningful and ultimately social rather than alienated. They're social rather than alienated. The forms of Middleton's comedy brings his plots looping together and allows for, perhaps even celebrates, the compromises and imperfections that make up the social and sexual world. So lots of critics have argued that Middleton's vision is bleak, or following uh, arguments that he's a Puritan dramatist, that Middleton's vision is moralistic. But I think what I want to try and suggest this morning is rather that the hyper-fertile plot of Chase Made in Cheapside, so you can see that fertility is already pulling against chastity in its title. The hyper-fertile plot self-consciously investigates ideas of comedy which see it as associated with rebirth and renewal. I'm going to argue that by so closely plotting sex and particularly reproduction in A Chase Maid, Middleton writes a play we might see as a kind of meta-comedy where weddings and christenings provide the occasion to affirm compromised grubby, but I think ultimately serviceable communal bonds. Okay, so let's try and get to grips with this plot. There's no central character or plot line in this play. And if you were to look at the distribution of parts, uh, it's, um, it's pretty evenly distributed around a number of, um, a number of characters. Chase Made in Cheapside is structured around a number of inter intricately interlocking triangles. The play begins with a brilliantly filthy scene between Maudlin Yellowhammer and her daughter Moll. Something of the carry-on innuendo is suggested by the very first line, have you played over your old lessons of the virginals? The Yellowhammers want to marry Moll to uh, Sir Walter Whorehound. So they want to marry Moll to Sir Walter Whorehound, he's going to be important uh, in our description this morning. And they want to marry their son, Tim, a student at Cambridge, to Sir Walter's landed niece brought out of Wales. 
The first of their ambitions will not succeed. They're not going to be able to marry Mole to Walter Forehound because she already has an understanding with young Touchstone. And Mole and young Touchstone take on, not entirely convincingly, but nevertheless, the role of the romantic couple whose courtship is going to structure the comic plot. The second of the Yellowhammer's ambitions for Tim the Tab does succeed, but the Welsh gentlewoman turns out to be one of Sir Walter's impoverished sexual cast-offs and not a gentlewoman from Wales at all. Sir Walter himself, meanwhile, is in a long-term threesome, or a threesome of sorts, an economic threesome, with the Allwits. The Allwits' marriage is maintained by Sir Walter, who is the lover of Mistress Allwit. Allwit himself, his name puns on the word Whittle, uh, a Whittle is a sort of complacent cuckold, a married man who accepts that he is being cuckolded by another man. So Allwit seems complacently accepting of this situation whereby his wife is having sex with another man, not least because it means all his expenses are paid. Mistress Allwit is pregnant as this play begins. She's one of many babies in this play, all of which, as we're going to discuss, are illegitimate. So Allwit is a happily kept man, aboard, living off immoral earnings and describing Sir Walter as the founder of his untroubled state. This is Allwit. The founders come to town. I am like a man finding a table furnished to his hand, as mine is still to me, Praise for the founder. Bless the right worshipful, the good founder's life. I thank him. He's maintained my house this ten years. Not only keeps me, sorry, not only keeps my wife, but it keeps me and all my family. I am at his table. He gets me all my children and pays the nurse monthly or weekly, puts me to nothing, rent nor church duties, not so much as the scavenger. The happiest state that ever man was born to. I walk out in the morning, come to breakfast, find excellent cheer, a good fire in winter, and all that goes on about all the benefits he has uh, from having his wife uh, sleeping with another man who pays the upkeep for all the children. Allwit is the opposite of the madly jealous or suspicious man we see in a range of other city comedies, that type from which Shakespeare borrows Othello. And he acknowledges his freedom from jealousy as a blessing. So Orwit has traded his wife's sexual favours and her fidelity for an expenses-paid lifestyle. But he's also lost his status in his own household. The servants call Sir Walter their master. When Orwit remonstrates that he is their master, they reply that he is their mistress's husband. So we can see that Walter Horhound is one point of contact between the Yellowhammers and the Allwits. In the crazy Venn diagram of this play, then, he's an overlap, and that's going to continue. Another overlap is Touchwood Senior. He's the older brother of the Touchwood Junior who Mole is going to marry. In the third scene of the play, we see Touchwood Senior parting regretfully from his wife. He acknowledges, we must give way to need and live a while asunder. Our desires are both too fruitful for our barren fortunes. How adverse runs the destiny of some creatures. Some only can get riches and no children. 
we, can, we only can get children and no riches. Then tis the prudent part to check our wills until our state rise, make our bloods lie still. So the Touchwoods are dogged by excessive sexual desire on the one hand and excessive fertility on the other. They need to part, they need to live apart in order to regulate their household economy. They get too many children that they can't afford to keep. So you can see that this is in parallel with Allwit's family who are being kept by their uh, father. The Touchwoods promise to meet regularly and as Touchwood puts it, they will talk in mirth and play at kisses with thee, anything wench but what may beget beggars. But when his wife leaves the stage in one of the play's characteristic turns of viewpoint, this apparently uxorious stud reveals that he's actually impregnated many women. One of them comes onto the stage immediately, a wench with child, another illegitimate baby. She offers it to him, do you see your workmanship? Touchwood defends himself, I am a good fellow, Faith, have been too kind to people of your gender. So this excessively fertile and hypersexual figure needs a counterpart. Touchstone's wife identifies that some couples can make only money and others only children. You can see that the plot requires, in answer to this couple who can make only children, a couple who can make only money. The Kixes come in as this wealthy, childless couple. Lady Kix bemoans to be seven years a wife and not a child, and her hapless husband, Sir Oliver, reports that he is consulting an apothecary about early modern versions of Viagra. That Sir Oliver's manhood is somehow suspect is supported both by early modern views about child conception, so uh, early modern uh, views of sexual reproduction were that the sperm contained all the matter for the child, the womb was just the kind of incubation chamber, there was no blending of, uh, there was no blending of matter uh, in conception. So that would suggest that if you're not, if, if, uh, if you're not having a child, it's the, it's the fault of the man. But also Lady Kix's Lady sharp insult, thou liest, brevity. Middleton has already used the name Short Rod in one of his previous comedies, A Mad World, My Master, but that's clearly what's being suggested here. I'm not making this sound as funny as it is, I think. <laughs> the Kixes are ready to meet Touchwood Senior, and their maid comes, uh, so, so they're ready in plot terms to meet Touchwood Senior. They need to be uh, impregnated. He uh, is the, the super impregnator. Their maid comes to explain that Touchwood will be their saviour. He has got nine children by one water that he useth. It never misses. So, so Oliver vows to buy this miraculously fertile water, even if it costs £500 a pint. Elsewhere, they promise £1,000 to purchase fruitfulness. So the sums involved are huge. The exchange of uh, large sums of money for a child are huge. There's a wonderful scene where Touchwood Senior brings a little vial of almond milk to the Kixes as a fertility elixir. It's hard, actually, to think of a more explicit stage representation of donor insemination. 
In fact, Sir Oliver drinks that almond milk. It's a kind of placebo. But Touchwood has to take lady kicks for a private consultation. Your medicine must be taken lying, he says. A bed, sir, asks uh, Lady Kicks. A bed or where you will for your own ease. Your coach will serve, says Touchwood. <laughs> the physic must needs please. Now, Walter Horhound has a connection to this plot too. So he's emerging as a kind of through line in these entangled relationships. He is the heir to the Kickses if they remain childless. So he's got a vested interest in them not having a child. In a famous formalist article on this play, the critic Richard Levin identified its four plots and praised the intricacy with which they interlocked into a cohesive whole. Further, he rated them on a scale of seriousness to farcicalness and across an axis of sympathetic to unsympathetic. So Levin does a kind of formalist te technical analysis about the plots uh, and how, how they work together. It's a lot of critical work to strip the messy human drama out of Chaste Maid, even in the service of arguing that it is in fact an organic whole. That's Levin's phrase, an organic whole. And for Levin, that's a way of saying, despite being a bit mucky, it's a good play, it's well made. And he ends by saying that Moll is the comic miracle, a chaste made in Cheapside. Uh, Levin's view of the play is that the love and fidelity of Moll and Touchwood Jr. redeems the play at the end. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure we need that in order to make it uh, a good play. But what Levin's analysis does do is to identify Horhound as the moral abyss at the centre of this decentered play. He, Horhound, is the go-between. He is the shared factor, the overlap, in these apparently distinct plots. And maybe that's what makes what happens to him at the end of the play rather striking. Horhound is wounded in a quarrel over Moll with her lover Touchwood Jr. This wounding marks a symbolically fatal blow to his masculine vigour in the play. He turns on Mistress Olwit, his long-term mistress, as a loathsome strumpet. And not even the hastily assembled collective cuteness of all his children can return Horhound to his former complacence about this unorthodox household. So he turns against the Allwit household and his own children. When news comes that Touchstone Jr. has died of his wounds with Horhound in the duel, Allwit turns against the former sugar daddy because he worries that Horhound's fortune is all going to be confiscated. Hard on the heels of this comes the news that Lady Kicks is pregnant. The medicine in the coach worked. So Horhound is not going to in inherit their money either. And this gives Allwit the courage to assert himself uh, in this really, really funny speech, um, which uh, kind of ignores the fact that for 10 years, as we've just heard, uh, Horhound has been keeping the house, sleeping with his wife, fathering these children. I wonder what he makes here with his consort. So Orwitz says, what's this man doing here? Why is he in our house? Who is he? Uh, I wonder what he makes here with his consorts. <coughs> Cannot our house be private to ourselves, but we must have such guests. I pray depart, sirs, and take your murderer along with you. Good were he apprehended ere he go. He's killed some honest gentleman. Send for officers. So Horhand leaves, confounded, 
the Allwits review how wealthy they are as a result of his, um, uh, all his gifts, and they vow to start anew and take a house in the fashionable street of the Strand, um, moving westwards. We had an idea about moving westwards uh, across into the city uh, last week. So Walter Hoha never appears in the play again. He's become its scapegoat. He's banished even from the busy, socially affirming scene of Touchstone and Moll's wedding. I think the question is, is this banishment morally deserved? Is it socially sanctioned? Or is it just structurally necessary? And what's the principle of ethics or of dramaturgy that we should bring to that assessment? How could we judge why it is that Horhound takes the rap uh, for all um, the immorality of the play. Throughout A Chase Made in Cheapside, what brings characters together <coughs> is sex. Even the romantic couple Maul and Touchwood Jr. are marked by passion rather than romance. I don't think they're an alternative to the governing id logic of Cheapside, but perhaps its more telegenic version. It may seem unexpected to recruit Middleton to the ranks of those feminists who argued for the structural and ethical, ethical equivalence of marriage and prostitution, but that does rather seem to be one of the findings of a chase made in Cheapside. Sex here is commercialised within and across marriage rather than outside it. We might expect a play preoccupied with the relationship between sex and money to feature boards and whores. And indeed, many city comedies, from Measures for Measure to The Dutch Courtesan, do prominently refer or include these stock characters. The prostitute is one of the stock characters of city comedy. Here, though, in Chase Made in Cheapside, they're nowhere to be seen, perhaps because their role is completely usurped by women within the marriage market and the economics of that market. <coughs> Touchwood's vial of almond milk makes visible as an onstage prop the systems of exchange and insemination with which the play is so preoccupied and which his own hyperpotency seems to symbolise. Mistress Allwit, Lady Kicks, two of Touchwood's wenches, these people all have babies during this play. And the fact that they're illegitimate seems to be accepted rather than pathologised. Oliver Kicks thinks that Touchwood's medicine has worked and that he himself has fathered his wife's child. Ho, oh, my wife's quickened. I'm a man forever. I think I have bestirred my stumps. Full of gratitude, he invites the Touchwood to come and live with him under his financial protection. I am so endeared to thee, this is uh, Oliver Kicks, telling Touchwood Senior, I'm so endeared to thee for my wife's fruitfulness that I charge you both, your wife and thee, to live no more asunder for the world's frowns. I have purse and bed and board for you. Be not afraid to go to your business roundly. Get children and I'll keep them. What's so enjoyable here is that it is exactly what Touchstone Senior has done. He's already impregnated Oliver Kicks's wife with a child who Oliver Kicks is going to keep. But that fact, the fact that Kix's son or um, child, I don't think we know it's a son, uh, Kix's child is um, never revealed to him as Touchwoods. He thinks it's his own. The fact that it's never revealed to him 
shows a kind of leniency, perhaps, in Middleton's moral universe. It's not entirely clear that it's necessary for Kicks to know this. He's happy not knowing. Women's perceived infidelity and the constant fear that a child does not belong to its father is, for contemporary tragedies, a toxic source of destruction. We might think about Leontes, perhaps, in The Winter's Tale. Here, these um, extended paternities seem normal. It's not impossible that an acceptance of this fact is actually presented by the play as morally and socially preferable to its violent alternatives. Critics, even modern ones, have been very, very hard on all wit, um, the man who accepts that his wife is sleeping with someone else and that that man is uh, providing for his household. They've been really moralistically disturbed by this uh, in ways which I think are actually quite interesting, um, uh, more so perhaps than people are disturbed by uh, violent sexual jealousy as a theme in plays. So perhaps we can look here then to ideas about comedy's relation to fertility to understand the ways in which Chase Made in Cheapside might seem self-conscious, a self-conscious or meta-comedy. <coughs> Writing about the structures of comedy, the anthropological structuralist critic Northrop Fry observed, something gets born at the end of comedy. And this is often, he says, out of a moment of ritual death. I'm going to spend a bit of time on uh, Fry's uh, analysis of comedy, uh, partly because it's useful for this play, partly because I think uh, it's, it's a really interesting um, meta kind of framework for thinking about comedy more generally. So something gets born at the end of comedy, often out of a moment of ritual death. This is a particularly apt uh, reading of Chaste Maid. I've already mentioned those births, and ritual death is presented to us in the play's final scene. Maul and Touchwood Jr., having had their marriage interrupted and obstructed by the Yellowhammers, who are still intent on marrying Maul to Walter Horhound, have died, apparently. <coughs> Touchstone Sr. brings news of his younger brother's death to a weeping Maul, who swoons and fades away with heartbreak. Their funeral, then, is elaborately staged at the opening of the last scene, 5-4. Here's, here's a stage direction <coughs> which sets up a great big um, uh, kind of funeral procession, uh, a big piece of stage business about a funeral. Recorders dolefully playing. Enter at one door the coffin of the gentleman, solemnly decked, his sword upon it, attended by many in black, his brother being the chief mourner. At the other door, the coffin of the Virgin, with a garland of flowers, with epitaphs pinned on it, attended by maids and women. Then set them down, one right over against the other, while all the company seem to weep and mourn. There is a sad song in the music room. Great stage direction, which uh, sometimes is talking about the place of the theatre at one door, at the other door, the music room. And sometimes he's talking about the place of the fiction, the gentleman, the virgin, the brother being the chief mourner. Of course, Moll and Touchstone Jr. are not really dead. They rise from their coffins, are quickly joined in marriage by the parson who has been brought ostensibly to conduct the funeral. 
the yellow hammers are not there because they fear that their neighbours will turn on them for having been so cruel to the young lovers. Touchwood Senior repurposes the unneeded shrouds as wedding sheets and tells the couple cheerfully, you may both go to bed when you please to. Fertility emerges from <coughs> death in a, more, uh, in, a co- in a reversal of what's a more common dance of death trope where death as a skeleton haunts the lovers. Uh, if you look at uh, Holbein's dance of death images, uh, for instance, uh, you'll see that's a really common idea that death is with the lovers, um, bringing death from fertility. Here we've got that turned around. Northrop Fry famously called comedy the mythos of spring. And uh, Fry's account of genres was all uh, uh, seasonal, tragedy being winter. And I'm going to discuss Fry's account for a few minutes in his Anatomy of Criticism to amplify my (coughs) earlier suggestion that Chase made is a kind of (coughs) meta-comedy. Fry identifies so-called new comedy, what the Renaissance had got via Plautus, as the basis for most modern comedy. And this is his account of that. What normally happens is that a young man wants a young woman, that his desire is resisted by some opposition, usually paternal, and that near the end of the play, some twist in the plot enables the hero to have his will. The movement of this kind of comedy, Fry argues, is the movement from one kind of society to another, from one kind of society to another. There's a movement from the world of the obstructing characters at the beginning to the world of the lovers at the end. And that's usually a generational shift. The obstructing characters are older, the the lovers are younger. Time is moving on. The appearance of this new society, Fry says, is frequently signalised by some kind of party or festive ritual. And Fry suggests that the end of the comedy typically reflects the tendency of the comic society to include rather than exclude, you might think about that in relation to Walter Horhound, the tendency of the comic society to include rather than exclude, he says the blocking characters are more often reconciled or converted rather than simply repudiated. So this is a view of comedy which would be very familiar to if you ever read Asterix books. This is the big feast at the end with the boar. Uh, and with uh, the musician uh, gagged um, so he can't do awful singing. Uh, if you don't know what I'm talking about, re- read some Asterix books. They're, they're really great. So Fry distinguishes two handlings of this set of comic tropes, one that focuses on the blocking figures and one that focuses on the young couple. So there are two different forms of tragedy. One is more interested in the figures who are trying to block, I think like Chase made, and the other is more interested in the young couple. The society, writes Fry, emerging at the conclusion of comedy represents a kind of moral norm or pragmatically free society. So something, as we've already heard, gets born at the end of comedy and often out of a moment of ritual death. Much of Fry's argument about comedy is articulated around Shakespeare. He designates Shakespeare's comedies the drama of the green world, the green world which charges the comedies with the symbolism of the victory of summer over winter. (coughs) Now, there's no green world in the busy commercial streets of the City of London in which Middleton's play takes place. But there is perhaps still a sense of this seasonal structure. The play takes place prominently during Lent, uh, that sort of 
late winter, spring kind of crossover period. Two promoters, these are men who are employed to ensure that Lenten dietary restrictions on the eating of meat are being observed. These two promoters are, in typical Middletonian fashion, making money on the side by selling on the meat they confiscate. And their clampdown on eating meat overlaps conceptually with a sort of religious rigidity or sterility, particularly around children. So if the play is producing all these children, uh, the promoters are sort of somehow working against that, and where those two ideas come together is in the idea, disturbing idea of children as a kind of meat. One of Touchwood Senior's infants, which was conceived, he tells us, in post-harvest festivities, a very explicit idea about natural um, reproduction, sort of uh, um, agricultural reproduction <coughs> and human reproduction. One of Touchwood Senior's infants is taken by its mother to London. What shift she'll make now with this piece of flesh in this strict time of Lent, I cannot imagine. Flesh dare not peep abroad now. So Touchwood says, how's the baby going to go down in London when there's such a kind of anti-meat moment? It's a very odd thing to say. Uh, Why would Lent uh, make it harder to take a baby to London? The promoters do indeed catch the wench, thinking that her basket carries illegal (coughs) meat, which, in a sense, it does, her baby. And they discover, to their dismay, that they have confiscated the baby. And then there's a scene where they don't know what to do Uh, with with this baby. At one level, this establishes the baby as so much meat, trafficked illicitly across London for the self-interest and carnality of others. But it also kind of suggests that the ban on meat, the religious ban on meat during Lent, is a ban on life itself, a kind of self-imposed sterility, a religiously ordained coldness, against which Touchwood's irrepressibly priapic presence is a joyous counter. The promoters are religious hypocrites. Their own self-interest is turned against them. The play's Lenten setting gives way then, ending in an Easter resurrection. The young couple rise from their graves, put aside their shrouds, and prepare for bed. The yellow hammers, keen to make the best of the situation, invite everybody to a festive dinner to celebrate the joint weddings of their children. Now, I do understand that idealising the phallus and the life-giving properties of male seed is a problematic tone to take on anything, particularly (laughs) perhaps on this play. This is not, happily, a D.H. Lawrence novel. Marrying off his impregnated cast-offs to fools and half-wits is not actually one of Touchwood Senior's more admirable qualities. He is not, in fact, a kind of sex god cross between Boris Johnson and George Clooney, (laughs) but rather the play's representation of the apex of a model of social relations, and this is an important part, I think, in which sex is always a diverted or triangulated encounter between men. That's not to say that that, that men men desire other men. That's a different argument, although it may also be relevant. But it's to say that social organisation uses women as tokens of exchange between men. Whorehound's relation with Allwit 
is more important to the themes of the play than his relation with Allwit's wife. The relationship with Allwit's wife is merely the vehicle for the relationship with Allwit. As the anthropologist Claude Lévy-Strauss identified massively influentially, kinship systems are relations between men conducted via women as tokens. Women are the conduit for male-male bonds. They're not partners to it. Men profit socially and financially from the transaction in women. What's different in Middleton's play is that it is not necessarily marriage itself that primarily illustrates this structural truth. It's actually relations within marriage and how husbands think about their wives. Allwit sells his wife's body to Whorehound for money. Lady Kix's pregnancy is the making of Touchwood Senior's fortune. Women in A Chase Made in Cheapside are surprisingly numerous. It's a really important play if you're interested in, in the representation of women in city comedy. There are 21 female roles out of 54 in this large cast. But they're also curiously individually insignificant. They're mostly named in the list of dramatist personae in relation to their husband, Allwit's wife, Lady Kicks. We don't know what they're called, uh, other than that they are related to these men. <coughs> or they're uh, given distinctly gendered roles rather than names, wet nurse, dry nurse, maid, wench. The only two women in the play to be given first names are the two Yellowhammers, mother and daughter. But these are generic ones, suggestive, in fact, of sexual immorality. Maudlin, taking uh, its name from Mary Magdalene, and Moll. They're, so they're sort of um, uh, slightly undermining names rather than individuating ones. And Moll herself is rather a problematic moral <coughs> centre for the play. She has very few lines, very little stage presence this dubious name, and a triumph at the end through intrigue rather than virtue. The play, though, does open with women characters talking. This structural feature is more associated with Middleton than any other playwright that you might actually open a play with women. And they're talking together about sex, as we've already seen. The play's large number of female characters converge in one important and importantly, female scene. At the centre of the play, the women converge for a kind of um, baby shower, essentially, a kind of christening ceremony <coughs> for Mistress Olwitt's latest illegitimate child, uh, a child fathered like the rest by Whorehound. And just as a sideline, if you look at plays of this period, city comedy plays, uh, they're often really complicatedly plotted, really, really difficult to read. My tip would be to look right in the middle, to look at the central scene, just the literal centre of the play, uh, as a really helpful way to understand how, what's being articulated here. Because we're used to a theatre which can only survive by selling drinks in the interval, we're used to plays which divide into two halves. Uh, the early modern theatre is completely different from that. We've either got continual staging in outdoor theatres, like the Swan or the Globe, or we've got uh, act uh, breaks, four act breaks for a five act play, act breaks of a two or three minutes, perhaps five minutes, uh, at these different punctuation points. So neither of those corresponds to a split in half. And often that split in half does quite a lot of violence to these plays, where the centre 
is a really important moment. And the centre here in Chase Maid is this scene, 3-2, of, of Mistress Allwit's uh, kind of uh, immediate uh, post-delivery um, uh, greeting with, with all her friends and neighbours. The central prop in this scene is the bed, the occluded place of sexuality in the play, here the presiding feature of a female space, uh, queened over by Mistress Allwit, with gossips, Puritans, maids, neighbours, nurses, all waiting attendance on her. Her new baby is a girl. The jokes are all about the girl's paternity. The observation that she is so like the father is, of course, comically double-edged, especially when Sir Walter enters with gifts for his new child. Allwit comes in, too, speaking in an aside about how fortunate it is he doesn't have to pay for the celebration. These women, he says, uh, great line, I think, these women have no consciences at sweetmeats. These women have no consciences at sweetmeats. So women's consumption here in this scene is a sort of correlative of male sexual appetite elsewhere in the play. What happens in 3-2 is that the Puritan women and the gossips drink more and more, get less and less guarded. When young Tim, the Cambridge student returning from university, enters the scene, he is serially and disgustingly wetly kissed by them all. The scene is a funny one, but one which feminist critics have felt disturbed by. Gail Kern Pastor argues that this scene constructs the play's women as leaky and uncontrolled. She says that women are uh, a point of anxiety in capitalist systems because they are spending rather than getting. Um, I mean, one might argue that that's what capitalism needs, people who are going to spend a lot. Um, and that, but, but Pastor argues that the play's women are, are figured as leaky and uncontrolled. What is potent seminal fluid in touchwood is here excessive and permeable. The ideal woman in Renaissance discourse was figured in metaphors of sealed or impenetrable perfection. The walled city, the enclosed garden, the locked treasure chest. These are common analogues for women's virtue. Yellowhammer uses many of them uh, to express how he's going to exert his will over his daughter, Moll. But instead of the aesthetic of closedness, ideal closedness here, we have the squiffy celebrants of Mistress Allwit's adultery slobbering over Tim and heading off to pissing Conduit. Now, it may be that this scene is intended or experienced as a misogynistic commentary on women's unreliability. But analysts of Carnival, following the influential arguments of Mikhail Bakhtin, might see it rather as a challenge to those normative Lenten values. Bakhtin's idea of carnival, which you've probably come across before, was articulated in a revolutionary work of 1968 on the French writer Rabelais. I'm not going to cover uh, Bakhtin's theories in a huge amount of detail, but they've been very influential for ideas about social order. Bakhtin argues that carnival uh, festivity is a subversive alternative to regular hierarchies, that it imposes a kind of topsy-turvy, <coughs> bottom-up inversion for a limited amount of time. Uh, so that's one aspect of carnival, this kind of subversion of hierarchies. But the other is the one I want to talk about just for a few minutes now, something Bakhtin called the grotesque body. Carnival was associated with excess 
with permeability, and above all, with the body. This is Bakhtin. With the lower stratum of the body, the life of the belly and the reproductive organs. Carnival therefore relates to acts of defecation and copulation, conception, pregnancy and birth. Festive and folk cultures, Bakhtin argues, <coughs> elevate a communal celebration of the grotesque. This is quite a long uh, quotation from Bakhtin, but I think it will give you a sense uh, how I'm trying to put this alongside Chase Maid. Contrary to modern canons, the grotesque body is not separated from the rest of the world. It is not a, co a closed, complete unit. So it's not a closed, complete unit. It's not like those ideals of Renaissance femininity. It is unfinished, outgrows itself, transgresses its own limits. The stress is laid on those parts of the body that are open to the outside world. That is, the parts through, the, through which the world enters the body or emerges from it, or through which the body itself goes out to meet the world. This means that the emphasis is on the apertures or convexities, or on various ramifications and offshoots, the open mouth, the genital organs, the breasts, the phallus, the pot belly, the nose. The body discloses its essence as a principle of growth which exceeds its own limits, only in copulation, pregnancy, childbirth, the throes of death, eating, drinking, or defecation. We can perhaps begin to see, just by uh, hearing that quotation from Bakhtin, how the plot of Chaste Maid constructs a kind of collective or communal grotesque body. That might also be a way of uh, challenging those assumptions about Middleton's characterisation too, that in fact what we've got is a collective form of characterisation, not a set of individual people. So a grotesque co uh, communal body, according to Bakhtin, not closed or completed, but preoccupied with the lower stratum, with copulation, conception, pregnancy and birth. So this kind of analysis links the plots of Chaste Maid, not in the formal linear analysis of Richard Levin, but in a more vital and engulfing amorphous quality which creates a collective carnivalesque body rather than these regulated, autonomous, separate plots. And Bakhtin's claims for the transgressive potential of carnival and the grotesque give a way perhaps to revaluate the potential of that scene with the gossips, three, scene three, uh, scene three, two, as a challenge, perhaps, to patriarchal values of enclosure and self-containment. <coughs> so how far, then, should we see Middleton's play as a carnivalesque challenge to order? Last week on The Alchemist, we talked about Johnson's Janus-faced attitude to consumerism, as evidenced, on the one hand, in The Alchemist, and... Um, uh, it's, it's near contemporary Johnson's writing of the entertainment for that shopping centre, Britain's Burse. There's perhaps a similar double aspect here. Middleton doesn't write court masks, but he's involved in a more directly civic writing. So the writer whose public theatre plays are so concerned with the city is also writing civic drama for Lord Mayor's pageants and so on. In the same year as Chase Maid, 1613, Middleton produces... Uh, a, a book containing two civic entertainments, one which, which uh, praises his namesake, Hugh Middleton, for bringing a new water supply to the city, 
all that stuff about enclosedness and uh, uh, liquids and stuff in the play, I think is probably a little bit to do with the so-called new river, the new water system, which came to London in this year. The second of these civic entertainments is called The Triumphs of Truth, a pageant for the new Lord Mayor. The Triumphs of Truth addresses the Honourable City of London and it presents the image of the city in female form. After a strain or two of music, a grave feminine shape presents itself from behind a silk curtain, representing London attired like a reverend mother, a, lo a long white hair naturally flowing on each side of her, on her head a model of steeples and turrets, her habit crimson silk. <coughs> this reverend mother, London, is in an interesting contrast to Middleton's usual mothers, who are essentially boards to their daughters. Uh, you may see this in Revenge's Tragedy, for example, <coughs> or in Mad World, My Masters, or indeed in the opening of Chase Maid. In these representations of mothers and daughters in the, in the comedies, we can see the flip side uh, of what's idealised in The Triumphs of Truth. Like Johnson, that's to say, Middleton can continue a discourse of praise and idealisation of authority in one form and demystifying it in another. He can look in two directions. A chase maid is full of tricksters and self-interest. The play forms a kind of anti-pageant, the kind of opposite of the Lord Mayor's pageant that Middleton's also writing. But it doesn't quite end up condemning the city's appetite. The play's one geographical outsider, the Welsh gentlewoman, is not a source of refreshment and alternative to the city, but a participant in its debauchery. Far from being a country heiress with thousands of sheep, Tim's intended wife is, as we've seen, one of Walter Horhound's doxies. It's Tim, described from the first scene of the play as the Cambridge boy, who is perhaps the most foolish of all the characters, lacking street savvy, writing pretentiously to his family in <coughs> Latin, accompanied back to Cheapside by his tutor, urging his mother to call him Timotheus rather than his usual diminutive. It's interesting that, uh, that, that the person who goes away from the city and comes back, Tim, who's gone to Cambridge and comes back, in some ways um, uh, gets, the, uh, gets the burden of the play's wrath. He, Tim is actually punished in the end by knowing the truth of the way he's been tricked. He's the opposite of Oliver Kicks, who never knows uh, who's fathered his child. Both Kicks and Allwit are contented by the... Uh, the, the kind of moral compromises that have been made around them. But Tim, perhaps, is punished for his varsity priggishness, not only be, by being married off to the whore before breakfast, but having what was a bragging exercise in scholastic logic. He tells his mother he will prove, an, uh, he will prove a whore an honest woman, which is a kind of um, scholastic exercise. He has this exercise turned into fact. At the end of the play, the trick, though, is that a wife cannot be a whore. The Welsh woman picks up that conceit and runs with it. There is a thing called marriage, and that makes me honest. It happens quite often at the end of Middleton plays, uh, that a, a, a distinctly immoral character says, well, now I'm married, I can't be immoral anymore. Marriage makes me honest. It's the imperfect credo by which the play's couples live, and Tim embraces it. I perceive then a woman may be honest according to the English print when she is a whore in the Latin. 
so much for marriage and logic. I'll love her for her wit. As always in drama, performance is all. Is Tim reconciled to this marriage and actually happily released by a more experienced woman from the strangely constrained bachelor world of Cambridge and his tutor? Or is he trapped into a marriage uh, that he cannot now unknow? The allegorical figure of truth triumphs in Middleton's contemporaneous city pageant, but in his plays, the ending is not so sure. It's not clear that revelation of what's happened is, a, is an important denouement for Middleton. Lot, what happens at the end of his plays is lots of things are still hidden. That seems to be the way you get an ending. <coughs> Middleton's ending to Chase Maid then captures the compromises which structure his play world. Something is born at the end of comedy, Northrop Fry wrote, but here the births are during the comedy, not at the end. They precede its central romantic marriage rather than following it. But what we don't get, I think, continuing with Fry's generic account, is a new society born from the ashes of the old. We don't get something new at the end of Chase Maid, but I'm not sure the play thinks we need it. Chase Maid is less moralising, less conventional, and more interesting, perhaps, than the comic paradigm Fry outlines. So today I've tried to talk a bit, about, bit more about comic structure, building on something we touched on in discussing the, co the clockwork plot of Volpone last week. And I've tried to understand Middleton's emphasis on fertility and birth as part of a reflection on the comic genre, a kind of meta-comedy. And what I'm going to try and do next week is to take up some of the um, arguments I've begun with this week, thinking about gender and how we might... How uh, we might conceptualise that in early modern plays. I'm going to talk about gender, witchcraft, and scepticism in *The Witch of Edmonton*, a true story based on the trial and execution of Elizabeth Sawyer, but given an ironic, rather arched eyebrow kind of rendition on the late Jacobean stage. I hope I'll see you there. Thank you.